This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. A surprising amount of news this Thanksgiving week with everybody fled from the Capitol for the North Woods hunting or Thanksgiving. You would think nothing would be going on, but actually there was quite a bit. Item number one, the state's next elections director will be Jonathan Brader, who was previously counsel for the Brennan Center's democracy program. He's also served as Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson's legal policy director. Brader has worked alongside retiring elections director Sally Williams for the past 11 months. He'll take over on January 2nd. Shortly after Williams steps down after serving just two years in the wake of the departure of longtime elections director Chris Thomas. Uh, Another appointment this week, this not by a state agency, but one related to state politics and government, and that is Simon D. Schuster. Now, you've heard of the publishing house Simon & Schuster, right? Well, no, the publishing house is not taking over as executive director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network, but Simon D. Schuster is taking over. He is a former reporter for Michigan Information Research Service, MERS, and he succeeds Craig Mauger, who is also a former MERS reporter, who succeeded Rick Robinson, who was there for a number of years, this is the organization, it's funded by foundation money that keeps tabs on campaign spending by all candidates for political office in Michigan. How much money they raise, how much they're spending, does some comparisons, does some analysis, and follows campaign finance spending better than any other Entity in Lansing. It's not a public agency. It is a private foundation. Now, item number two, the State Capital Commission has allowed, or I should say maybe we should say the House clerk, Gary Randall, has allowed a nine-foot Jewish menorah to be placed next to the state Christmas tree for Lansing's silver bells in the city celebration. Actually, I think it's already gone, but it was allowed to be there for the lighting of the tree a week ago for the beginning of the Silver Bells in the City celebration. Uh, Lansing Mayor Andy Shore, who is Jewish, was very pleased. There seems to be a conflict over whether the tree is on state or city property And state police said, uh, look, if you put a menorah next to the tree, we are not going to take it down. And Gary Randall decided, you know what, the optics of taking down a menorah after it's been placed next to the Christmas tree would not be good. Let's let it stay there for the lighting, and then we'll take it away, and we'll deal with this issue later on. Uh, Item number three. The group seeking to recall Representative Larry Inman in the 104th House District 
has said it is confident in the validity of the 13,991 signatures submitted to the State Board of Canvassers, reiterating hopes for holding a recall election in May of next year. A total of just over 12,000 valid signatures from registered voters are required to trigger the recall election. Now, Inman, who is a Republican from Williamsburg, just north of Traverse City, has 10 days from this, uh, actually, last Monday, I should say. In other words, this coming week to decide if he will run as the Republican nominee. If he does not, the Republicans will be able to hold a primary as well as the Democrats. And I would just say this, uh, if I were Larry Inman, who is facing a trial coming up on charges uh, that stem from text messages to union officials appearing to ask for more campaign contributions in exchange for him voting on a prevailing wage repeal last year, Uh, I don't think if I were Larry Inman in that situation, I would want to be standing for continuation in office in a recall. And for sure, the Republican Party, both at the local and state level, would not like to see that. So I think if these signatures are certified, validated by the local authorities, Uh, and there is a recall, I think it's very possible that either uh, there will be a primary for the Republicans and a new nominee selected to fill out the remainder of Larry Inman's term if that candidate is successful, or a Democrat if that candidate beats the Republican would fill it out, or perhaps the House would even move Uh, in the interim, to expel Larry Inman. They have asked him to do that, and he has refused so far to do that. Item number four, some poverty rights groups are suing uh, top federal officials, alleging the Healthy Michigan Plan work requirements are unconstitutional, arguing it rewrites the Medicaid Act. The National Health Law Program and another group called Center for Civil Justice, as well as the Michigan Poverty Law Program, they filed the lawsuit, which is known as Young versus Azar, last week in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, seeking class action status and a declaration that the state's Healthy Michigan Plan applications violates the Administrative Procedure and Social Security Acts as well as the U.S. Constitution. And the complaint reads, and I'm quoting in part, this sums it up, quote, without access to Medicaid coverage, people across Michigan will be forced to forego treatment for their conditions or will incur significant medical debt when their conditions become so severe that they have no choice but to seek treatment in acute care and emergency department settings, unquote. Michigan implemented the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, Medicaid expansion back in 2014, five years ago. But last year, the legislature passed a law 
directing the state to request permission under a particular section of the act, the Obamacare Act, to condition eligibility on which were accepted from the state legislature. But she said this is probably going to mean that a lot of people who have hitherto been eligible for Medicaid will not be anymore some 61,000 minimum and maybe as many as 185,000 individuals would lose health coverage as a result of the work requirements, which take effect January 1st. So the state, under what is the situation right now, barring some reversal because of the federal lawsuit I just described, Barring that, the state will begin suspending coverage effective May 1st for individuals who have not met the requirements, which says that healthy Michigan plan enrollees aged 19 to age 62 must work at least 80 hours per month, but pregnant women medically frail individuals or those with disability or other conditions that prevent working are among a group exempted from the requirement. That is the first list of items, but we're going to be back in a minute with more items, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and I'm going to continue with my list of things that happened in this amazingly busy week for a Thanksgiving week when you think things would be pretty dull. Item number five, economists estimate $36 million in state revenue was lost when the United Auto Workers, the UAW, went on strike against General Motors, idling 31,500 employees, including contract workers, for 40 days. Now, that's according to a research seminar in Quantitative Economics Annual Conference. That sounds like a pretty complex maybe boring, hard to understand uh, event or group of people, but some really important news comes out of it. $36 million is a chunk of change. One of the economists at the conference said that the striking workers and the workers who were temporarily laid off because of the strike were not receiving their typical paychecks, and so they would not have their income taxes withheld. Likewise, they were not spending at their typical rate during the strike, and that would have reduced sales tax collections. This economist, whose name, I'll just give it to you, is Gabriel Ehrlich, said that, and I'm quoting here, we are estimating that when you put all that together, the strike reduced from the school aid fund and general fund revenues by about $5 million in September, which would have been fiscal year 
2019, the last fiscal year. But then he says, we are projecting an additional cost of about $31 million over the forecast. So when you put that together, we estimate that the strike costs the state coffers about $36 million. Now, although the UAW has settled at this point with General Motors and Ford, and it's expected to win a similar contract with Fiat Chrysler, Ehrlich said there is still a lot we don't know about the aftermath and fallout of the strike. And he said, and I'm quoting again, we don't expect permanent harm to Michigan's economy right now from this strike, but the risk over the longer term is the Detroit three automakers will recalibrate their assessment of Michigan as a location to produce vehicles, unquote. Item number six. I think we've all heard about the well-publicized quote from Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky last week talking to Hillsdale College Republicans that Democrats in the legislature and Governor Gretchen Whitmer are on the, quote, blank, crazy spectrum, unquote. I'm not allowed to say what that blank actually was, but I think everybody now knows what it was. And the real question is, what is the fallout from that? What is the blowback? What are the repercussions in terms of negotiations between Mike Shirky and the governor and also including House Speaker Lee Chatfield? Well, the reaction so far has been, at least from the Republicans, that they're standing with Mike Shirky. I don't think they feel too happy about his choice of words, but... They think his general sentiments are correct. They certainly agree that they apply to Governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, if not to all legislative Democrats. I think the Republicans probably think, or at least Mike Shirky thinks, it's too bad more Democrats in the House and Senate don't take issue publicly with what Governor Whitmer did with her 147-line item vetoes totaling a cut of nearly $1 billion from what the legislature center and also shuffling around money in various state departments to the tune of $630 million and have that spent in ways that the legislature did not intend. So Mike Shirky, I think, uh, if he could take it back, would say, uh, you know, my quote probably uh, accurately describes my own thinking about the governor, although I should not have used those words, but maybe I went a bit overboard in castigating House and Senate Democrats for not taking issue with her because, after all, they've got to, these are the Democrats, protect their governor. She's a Democrat, and they don't want to get sideways with their governor. And so they're forced to bite their lips, which they've been doing for two months. Uh, And I will say this, various colleagues of Mike Shirky in the Republican caucus uh, have taken to the editorial pages 
to defend uh, Shirky's take on what has been going on, even if they don't applaud his choice of language. Senators Peter Lucido, a Republican of Shelby Township in Macomb County. Another Senator, Rick Outman, a Republican of Six Lakes, which is in Montcalm County, northeast of Grand Rapids. Kevin Daly, a Republican of Lum in Lapeer County. And Kurt Vanderwall, a Republican of Ludington. They've all taken to the editorial columns to criticize Governor Gretchen Whitmer over the ongoing budget drama. And then Senator Jim Runstad, a Republican from White Lake in Oakland County, called on Whitmer in a press release to restore funding to various programs, naming autism support services, skilled trades education, veteran support services, programs to help disabled individuals enter the workforce and services to assist seniors as specific examples. Lucido's editorial in the Macomb Daily was entitled, quote, Governor Whitmer is not Michigan's queen, unquote. And he also specifically calls out autism services, veteran services, and police funding as those areas affected by the governor's vetoes. I'm going to quote a little bit more from Lucido's piece. Instead of rolling up her sleeves with the legislature and doing the hard work of ironing out budget differences and crafting a more sensible long-term plan to fix our roads, other than, you didn't say this, I am, a 45-cent per gallon hike in the state gasoline tax, I'm continuing the quote now from Lucido, the governor made an all-or-nothing bet on a gas tax, unquote. He continues, quote, But the funny thing about government is that it plays with other people's money, your money. And so the only ones who are losing on her bet are you, the people of Michigan. On Thursday, uh, Outman and Daly and Vanderwall all issued columns that touched on similar themes. I'll discontinue that diatribe now. But uh, we will be back with a guest, and I think you'll uh, get some interesting tidbits about Michigan agriculture that you didn't know existed. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned as promised, and we have a special guest with us, Jason Allen, who is a former state representative, a former state senator, but now he's got an incredibly interesting job, uh, a Trump appointee, President Donald Trump, He is Director of Rural Development for the United States Department of Agriculture. Welcome to Political Insider, Jason Allen. Thank you, my friend. Representative, we really appreciate you having us on your show, (laughs) and I am a regular fan of it, and I listen to your podcast uh, wherever I'm traveling throughout the state of Michigan. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, Let me just start out by asking you, and I want you to talk about anything you think is important today 
But as I understand it, they're kind of like two components to the federal presence in agriculture in Michigan. Mm-hmm. There's the kind of non-growing sector, the economic correct. investment arm. Yep. Yep. And I think that's you. And that then, is correct. And then yeah. there's another one, uh, which you'd call maybe the crop production arm, the yep. Farm yep. Service Agency, headed by uh, a former state representative, Joel Johnson. Is that correct? Correct, sir. Very good. Okay. Well, so uh, describe to me, what are you responsible for uh, in the economic investment arm of the USDA rural development here in Michigan? Well, um, it's a very diverse uh, program. So uh, to follow up kind of on your earlier statements, there are, I believe, approximately five presidential appointees in the state of Michigan, which would be the Eastern and Western District Prosecuting Attorneys, U.S. Marshal, uh, my friend Joel Johnson, who heads up Farm Services Administration, and then my position at Rural Development. Our uh, organization uh, is part of dating back to Lincoln and uh, saw growth uh, kind of in the second Roosevelt administration and then has kind of uh, grown over the years and encompassing a lot of different areas. Uh, When the secretary gave us our charge when we were appointed to this job back in December of 17, we were given three specific objectives. One is infrastructure, two is jobs, and three is rural broadband. And when you look at the over 47 different programs that we have, uh, those have been our strategic uh, uh, areas. Uh, to give you some background, we have approximately 10 offices, including a state headquarters in East Lansing, running from Gladstone all the way down to Pawpaw and, and points in between. In our, our big areas, uh, we uh, finance for families, working families in rural Michigan, about 9,000 homes last year. In that programmatic area, we have approximately, um, uh, uh, we did about approximately 5,000 homes for families. Uh, in the guarantee, and then we have a direct housing program, uh, which we did about approximately another 2,000 homes. From there, we have a home repair program that helps uh, uh, families be able to repair their homes. We have a small program that we partner with MISHTA in in, uh, new housing for multifamily construction, Uh, but we have uh, approximately about 60 uh, rural housing uh, facilities that were built uh, back in the second Johnson administration in the mid-60s to mid-70s. Uh, and then we also work with farm labor housing in the housing component. So housing is, is a big part of it because, as you know, with the growth in the Michigan economy uh, expanding so rapidly, we've seen a significant demand uh, for housing. We rank about uh, in the top two or three in the United States on our housing programs. It's unbelievable how much you do outside of what everybody thinks of when they hear the word agriculture or farming. I mean, it's almost like everybody, everything but farming, uh, except that it's all intertwined, right? It, it, absolutely. And and so, you know, when you take a look at where Secretary Purdue has given us, he, he's looking at real prosperity. Um, you know, as you know, and you've had a variety of different people on rural poverty rates, are twice as high as urban poverty rates, and that has been an objective for us in those three three large pillars. Uh, from there, kind of in our, our uh, development programs, we do a lot of infrastructure for villages, uh, uh, small cities, um, and, and much like any programmatic issue laid out by Congress with uh, different definitions by different programs, in general, 
um, our kind of our sweet spot is uh, communities under 20,000. Our community facilities monies, uh, last year we had approximately 80 to $100 million, and that is where we built things like a new jail up in Escanaba, a new, we're in construction for a new fire station in Weddington. Uh, we just announced uh, in uh, the Mount Pleasant area we're funding the road commission for their new headquarters. In addition to that, we have hospital uh, paper in a variety of different hospitals in rural Michigan, including many in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, and then we've also, over the years, financed daycare centers. Uh, we've also helped with uh, different types of uh, facilities that, that would need, uh, uh, that would be community-owned. And that could go for a local unit of government, or it could also cover like a not-for-profit in the case of the daycare center over in Alpena, uh, and the beauty of that community facilities program is, is that you can finance to up to 40 years on your buildings, and it's pegged at the federal funds rate. Right now, um, we're at about 3% uh, for that, that funding mechanism. A new jail in Escanaba. Who would believe that the USDA would be responsible for that? Yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs> then from, it's pretty amazing. Then from there in that infrastructure space, Bill, we... We did about $100 million last year in, in sewer and water projects. And, and so uh, we just did down in Osmer Township uh, outside of, uh, uh, of Kalamazoo uh, uh, a large uh, uh, 9 or $10 million project there. We have uh, $17 million going back into Lettington. We have money going into Sheboygan. We have money going into Ishpeming. Uh, we have money going over into a couple of communities in the Thumb. Uh, we also have a, a large project going up in Houghton. And so the kind of the increase in funding that has occurred under this administration in sewer and water goes back to some, some areas of infrastructure and water quality uh, that, that have been laid out to us. And so, again, we're in the top two or three in the United States on sewer and water because of the preciousness of the Great Lakes. You've got over 100 employees, don't you? About 100, uh, yeah, 100, about 100 employees, 10 offices. And so a very, very, and, you know, we've got really good experts. You know, they're, they're seasoned employees uh, uh, that do an amazing job. You know, when you take a look at trying to address a multifamily housing challenge with some people that may have really special needs or a working-class family that's struggling to get a new house, you have to be compassionate about it. Have you met Sonny Perdue, the Secretary of Agriculture in the Trump yes. administration? Yes, sir. Um, on a regular basis, uh, when he's in in the state, uh, Joel and I are usually at those visits. And then uh, when I'm in the District of Columbia, uh, which is semi-annually, uh, we generally automatically have a meeting of my peers with him. He's a former governor of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, how many times has he Football visited? Players, sir. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And and his distant cousin is in the U.S. Senate right now. Um, yes, so how many times has he visited Michigan? Do you know, sir? I, I uh, have lost track of that. <laughs> I know that I know that uh, you know he was in uh, 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 for a hearing on the farm bill uh, last year or a year and a half, two and a half years ago, and then I, I, I believe there's been several visits that you know I'm trying to think through. Uh, I didn't come prepared to get those eyes in it, but there's been a handful of those visits since that, sir. What about the other uh, app, so to speak, of the USDA presence in Michigan, the Crop Production Farm Services Agency component headed by Joel Johnson? 
how many employees do they have and what are they really responsible for compared to what you do? I really think it would behoove you to have Joel on, but from what I understand, and, and I'm going to give you approximately an 80,000-foot viewpoint, they are designed uh, to help uh, create an insurance program and securitize uh, fluctuations in prices of agricultural commodities by a variety of different tools. They have the ability to help with uh, price supports in certain types of situations. They also have insurance and guarantees. We have got to take a short break here, but we will be back in a minute with Jason Allen, who is the Director of Rural Development for the USDA in Michigan. Back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Jason Allen, who is Director of Rural Development for the United States Department of Agriculture in the state of Michigan. That is kind of what we call the non-growing sector uh, in terms of crops and farming that we traditionally think of is really the economic investment arm of Rural Development USDA in Michigan. Uh, Jason Allen, I just want to ask you, uh, what are some of the other things that you are particularly focused on right now going forward in your responsibilities? So, so two different areas I want to at least uh, address a little bit is our business programs and then what we're doing in high-speed fiber. And I, and I think back when I was a young lad and how you walked all across Michigan's Upper Peninsula all the way down to Detroit and jumped in the water and got a feel of the <laughs> diversity of the state of Michigan. And I got to meet you at that point in time. And you think about the diversity of our state, but communications is a big part of, of where we are, are lacking is the ability to get fiber out to those uh, rural communities. In the uh, Farm Bill and then also initiative of the president, we have allowed for our municipal power authorities, whether that be like Escanaba or Newberry or Alpena or uh, Charlevoix Power, uh, to be able to borrow money out of the uh, Michigan or out of the United States Department of Agriculture Rural Utility Services money. And we've also allowed uh, for traditional cooperatives. This is getting ready to prepare for smart meters. And smart meters means that they'll be able to uh, build a, and have a more reliable system uh, because they'll be able to much more quickly uh, get an identification of power outages. With that, uh, it's going to require fiber being laid to uh, a variety of switches and potentially to the home. And so in, in Great Lakes Energy, which is Boyne City headquartered in 21 counties west of I-75, all the way almost down to Grand Rapids, we just recently concluded a $180 million loan uh, at uh, a little bit over 2% to allow them to build this grid out. And they're following a, a model similar to what Midwest Electric and Communications north of South Bend, Indiana, along the uh, uh, Ohio border, Indiana border, has done by building out high-speed fiber to all the homes. What they're doing in both models will be having 100 gigabytes of, of, of speed uh, between up and down, which will, we believe, allow small businesses 
families to be able to get better education, uh, allow for uh, better communications and economic opportunity. And so we are seeing that interest. Uh, looks like Coldwater Electric is in early discussions with us, as well as uh, where your, uh, your daughter lives here in Traverse City. Uh, they uh, are looking at borrowing money for us to do the same type of project. And so that has been a real initiative, along with our traditional loaning pro- loan program uh, for rural utilities. We just did a, about a $47 million deal with uh, uh, Cloverland Electric in the uh, eastern upper peninsula. And so I believe what we're going to see is, is that as these rural utilities uh, grow and become more comfortable, we will see a real large push for high-speed fiber. We've worked with the Michigan Farm Bureau uh, and also the National Farm Bureau, Michigan Cooperatives, and the Michigan uh, Municipal Electric Associations on those. The other big area we've been working on, Bill, is business development. And so we have a, an ability to do guarantees uh, with uh, uh, banks uh, to uh, help uh, small businesses, mid-sized businesses in, in uh, rural Michigan be able to grow and prosper. Uh, we are excited about what we've done with a couple of veneer operations along with uh, hotels and other manufacturing. So if you think about our uh, abilities, we have the ability to, to build the infrastructure for community. We have the ability to finance small businesses in that community. We have the ability to help uh, provide the housing in these rural communities. So it's a, a daunting task, but we have a lot of tools in the toolbox uh, for so much of Michigan. Quite a surprise to me at least, that you are involved in so many different aspects of the Michigan economy beyond what I would think most people think of when they hear the term agriculture or farming. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, you have a very diverse background yourself. You ran a top retail clothing store in Traverse mm-hmm. City. You were an elected local official. Then you were an elected state representative. You were elected two-term state senator. You were termed out. You might still be there, for heaven's sake. Uh, <laughs> you know, if the voters uh, had their way, they would have kept you, but they couldn't. Uh, constitutionally, you were limited. So uh, what experience did you feel you took out of the legislature? Was it a help to you moving into this job, or was it a really steep learning curve, or did you deal with enough agricultural issues in the legislature? After all, you represented a lot of farmland right. in northern Michigan. Did it really help you hit the ground running when you got this job? What do you think? Well, Bill, I think the the thing that, that my time uh, creating relationships in Lansing really helped me. I, I remember one of the organizations coming into me and that we were meeting with, you know, and there's a variety of associations we all know from the townships, the uh, cities, the road commissions, the hospitals, the power associations. I mean, it, you can, I can go on those lists. And, and being able to have those relationships were, were incredibly important because uh, we have a great uh, set of programs, but the awareness at the senior leadership level uh, of the uh, organization, so that helped out a lot. Then the, the second component was, was the ability to try and figure out you know, how, uh, how can you help uh, strategically expand our programs? And so what I did is, is that when, when I received the appointment, I worked with our staff, we were able to figure out by county uh, on the big areas, you know, where we were over and underperforming. And because of, of my legislative background, generally speaking, if you're going over to Alpino, you know somebody, or if you're going over into uh, Lawrence Berriga, you know somebody. 
And so then that helped our staff that in areas that we were underperforming at least create the relationships. And then finally, we were able to, because we had the relationships, to be able to overlay some of the programmatic issues that were going on in the state, uh, which then we could sort of dovetail into activities, whether it be uh, some of the challenges with uh, the Upper Peninsula and, and heating and, and uh, broadband, uh, whether that be over in northeast Michigan and some of the initiatives they're doing on tourism, we've been able to help there. Did you uh, feel that you are able to interact with state elected officials now better than you might have if you'd never had the experience in the legislature? And also, I should point out, you had a very important post in the Veterans uh, Department right. for um, the state of Michigan under Governor Rick Snyder. Now, right. how has that, has that helped you at all? Well, when you start laying out the, the issues that you're dealing with, okay, so, so you and I both know, and you know, your time in the legislature, you create relationships, and so you have the ability to get a hold of an elected official. You know, uh, 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 give me an example, and, and there's myriads of these, but you know, Jim Thomas had a problem with one of his uh, uh, constituents uh, over on the uh, Sunrise side. He's a state Jim, senator yeah, on the yeah, on the Sunrise side. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was able to, you know, his staff called up, hey, Jace, we got this problem. Can you get us directed? So I got him connected with our Trevor City office and worked through some problems. Uh, you know, down along the, the what I call the boot of Michigan, you know, the Albion, Adrian, you know, we had the same types of discussions going on down there. And we were able to to create those partnerships. So so that helped out a lot as far as activities going on. Then the, then the other thing that I think when you look at the veteran side, uh, the issues that you're dealing with is is that rural Michigan historically has the highest percentage of veterans, and so when you when you start taking a look at a Alcona County with 10 percent of its population as veterans, when you start taking a look at Hillsdale County, I think it's about approximately nine nine and a half percent veterans. You had already talked to many of those post commanders. You already talked to many of those county officials. So it just helps uh, allow you to to create. Uh, those relationships. When I give you an example in our direct housing program, which helps a lot of working families that may not have great credit rating, sometimes that's a better opportunity than using the, the uh, veterans guaranteed housing programs that they get as a as an honorably discharged veteran. And so those are the types of things that that it all uh, it all encompasses. I think the other things is, is that at least you then know to ho- who to call. When you're working with uh, some of the associations and having their uh, their regional or state meetings, you know the realtors are certainly an important friend of ours. The bankers are certainly an important friend of ours. The credit unions in our housing are guarantees uh, for both community facilities and also for the business development. And so that allows those relationships to expand. And hopefully, there's a better understanding between the two parties. How do you feel about the strength? of economic investment. You know what? I shouldn't have asked that question. It's a privilege. Can I (laughs) touch USDA RD backslash Michigan? You can find all the information out. And Bill, I'd love to come back anytime you have time. We will definitely get you back. And there's so much more we could learn. But boy, have you given us an earful. Fantastic. Jason Allen, Director of Rural Development for the USDA in Michigan. Thank you for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thank you, my friend. We'll be back next week.